Our guest in the studio on Profiles is our very own William Morris, Brother William, to his listeners on Friday afternoons here at WFIU. I'm Will Murphy. Thank you for joining us. And William, thank you for uh, joining us for this program. Thank you, Will. It's a great treat to be here with you. (laughs) Now, uh, folks who listen on Friday afternoons to WFIU are uh, no doubt familiar with the Soul Kitchen, where uh, Brother William brings a different variety of uh, music to the airwaves here at WFIU than we ordinarily have. But listeners might not know uh, the background and how Brother William got to the place he is right now, and I think that's the focus of this hour. So let's get to it. William, you and I, of course, have have known each other quite uh, a long time, and usually on this program when we interview someone, we go back to the beginning where they started off. But with you, I almost want to go back to before the beginning because your history, your family history is very different and very interesting. So let's start by talking about your parents. Well, Will, you're right. That's a, it's a long story, and so I'm going to try to give you the very short version. But in essence, I sort of had three sets of parents. I had some biological parents, a Scottish-Irish mother, and an African-American Indian, American Indian, Native American father who were high school students in Terre Haute. When I was born, my name was Lloyd, Uh, but my parents had to give me up because they could not get married at that time due to the legislation that forbid interracial marriage. So I was put up for adoption and I was somewhere for four days. Then I went to a foster family and I was renamed after my foster father, whose name was Tobias Samuel. So they called me Toby Sam. And I was Toby Sam for a year and a half, and then a year and a half um, into my life, I got I was adopted by a family in South Bend, and that's when my name became William. So in the first two years of my life, I went from uh, Lloyd to Toby Sam to William or Billy Bill, as my family calls me. So it's a there's a lot going on there. Now, I'm not sure where we're going to come to this in the hour, but. The strands of your life uh, interweave in interesting ways, and so we'll probably be coming back to your biological parents before the end of this hour. But let's uh, go to uh, uh, the other sets of parents. Do you have much? Did you have much interaction with the folks, the foster folks, who were with you for a year and a half? Well, I did not. During, of course, during that time, I don't remember very much actively. But uh, of course, I met them when I was about forty years old, and I still meet them, and so I still go and visit them. Uh, my foster father has passed, but my foster mother is about, she's 90, and she still lives in Terre Haute. She was, um, I think, were raised in communities that don't have a lot of money, and definitely African-American communities. They would sort of be familiar with there's always a person, a maternal figure, who took in foster children or um, adopted children or different, different, you know, different family types. And so she was in, she was a foster parent, and she ended up having, um, her name is Mary, she ended up having 125 foster children. And so she and I are very strongly connected because I was her first one. So, but yeah, she's still uh, alive. And when I go over to uh, Terre Haute to visit her, she calls me Toby Sam. <laughs> she doesn't call me William. There was a funeral one time over there in Terre Haute, and I went to the funeral. One of her daughters had died. And everybody's calling me Toby Sam. And, you know, and so I asked one of the people there, I said, are you ever going to call me William? They said, oh, no, you are Toby Sam. <laughs> so that's just who I am. I'm Toby Sam in Terre Haute. Now, what was the feeling like when you come back to that person that was there at the very beginning of your life and you don't see them for four decades? Well, it was um, 
it's a it, the long story is it takes a while to explain the circuitous network by which I met her again. But when I did find the right house and sort of ended up in a sort of divine route back to her house, I went up to this small house um, in the um, southern part of Terre Haute one Sunday morning, and there was a man outside working a garden. And I said, sir, my name's William, and I understand I was a foster child here many, many years ago. My name was Toby Sam. And he looked up and he said, uh, 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 uh. There, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm doing his voice. There, 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 there's a w- w- woman inside that, that will want to meet, meet you. So I went on inside the house, and there were four women sitting around the table eating breakfast. And I said, um, said the same thing. My name's William, but I understand I was here many years ago. My name was Toby Sam. And those women looked up, and you could just hear a pin drop. They just looked up, and the older woman, Mary, she got up. And she said, please don't say anything. Let me just touch you. You're my Toby Sam. And she put her hands on my face and everything. And, and um, you know, it was just, you know, the hairs on my neck were standing up. And it was, like, really wild. But it was, but one of the things that was so interesting about that experience was when I walked in that house, I felt like I'd been there before, even after all that time. And, and she'd been in that, that same house. Oh, yeah, she'd been in that same house. So I sat down to have some coffee with them, and she was with her her biological daughters, all of whom were my big sisters during the time I was there. So they all had recollections of me, too, like a missing brother. And so um, I, after a while, I said, you know, this is so great to meet you all, but it's very hard to believe. And she said very kindly, she said, you don't, you don't believe this? Wait right here. And she goes into this back room, and I hear her going through papers and everything. She comes back, and there's all these pictures of me. And I said, I'll be doggone. I mean, you know, I had to just cry. I was like, whoa. She'd held on to Yeah, she had all these pictures. Picture. Yeah. And then later on, she showed me this panorama, this um, set of all these pictures of foster children she had. And, uh, and my picture's right there in the middle. And, of course, I had never seen this picture, so it was sort of like, whoa. I had never known what I looked like as a baby. I had a big head just like I do now. (laughs) (laughs) Now, this woman is uh, Caucasian? No, no, she's African-American. And her husband was, um, he was very heavily uh, Native American, but he was raised in African-American tradition. And uh, his name was, yeah, like I said, Toby Sam. Wow. I'm little Toby. All right. So you move from one family to another to a third family in South Bend, you said. Yeah. But I th- always think of you for some reason, and you don't sound like you're from Terre Haute. You sound like you're from the East Coast. And I always think of you in Newark. Well, after I was adopted, my father and uh, my mother, who I always just refer to as my father and my mother because they raised me. So they adopted me, and I went to South Bend, Indiana. My father was a very sort of strong, sort of old-fashioned man, but he had been a Tuskegee Airman. So, you know, he had this sort of military background, And he also was the first African-American real estate broker in the state of Indiana. And he initiated a lot of housing cases up in St. Joe County that broke down redlining and um, took down barriers to consumer lending for African-Americans and everything. So he really just changed all of really changed all of Indiana. But it started there in St. Joe County Um, when I was 12. He got a job as the National Director of Housing for the NAACP, so he worked for Roy Wilkins, and he went to New York. And then a year or two after he left, and we followed him and went on out to to the East Coast. So 
then I grew up in Newark, New Jersey, in the neighborhood where The Sopranos literally is was filmed and everything. And so I went from, as I say, the shadow of uh, the Golden Dome of Notre Dame to <laughs> Newark, New Jersey. It was a big jump, too. That's a transition. Yeah, it was a big transition. How do you make that transition? With a lot of personality and the ability to shoot a jump shot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's really about it. You know, I mean, I've always been able to get along with people. And I was a good student, and I was I was a decent athlete. So I was a all all state football player, baseball player, ran track and basketball. So sports really helped me blend in, and you know, helped me find a place. So you're you're in Newark. What's your reaction? I mean, uh, how does the mindset change? Well, it changed very fast, Will, and this is really a sort of dramatic change because. Where we lived, which is so typical of, of my life, we lived right at a point where in front of us were the Italians and the Irish. Behind us were the Puerto Ricans and the blacks. And I got to know all of the communities because wherever people were playing ball, that's where I would end up at. So in the, in the years when I was in Newark, they would say, or through Facebook, they'd say, oh, yeah, Bill Morris, he, was, he knew everybody everywhere because I always went to wherever anybody was playing ball. But... You know, the funny thing about that, though, Will, is that out of that sort of circulating to find the closest basketball court or baseball diamond or football field or anything, there was music. You know, music was following me. And I think I've I've always been receptive to music and listening to people's music. And, you know, it's sort of like meeting people. Once you show an interest in people, then people are, feel free to tell you about who they are. And the same thing happens with music. Once you show a sort of interest in, you, in what people like to listen to, they share it with you. And I think that's sort of been a pattern all my life. So, you know, in South Bend, there was sort of, I was bubblegum pop, um, but it was the Notre Dame station and it was a pop station. So they would play Tommy James and the Shondells and uh, the, the, um, the box tops and all that kind of thing and the Beatles. And then I would always read the Soul Brother Top 20 out of Jet Magazine. So I wanted to know, you know, what was going on there with Sam and Dave and James Brown. And and at that time, just like all across the United States in the late 60s, you know, African-American communities were there were groups that were forming that would have a sort of, a, you know, horns and and everything. And so the group in South Bend was called the Soul Sounds. And one of the leaders of the Soul Sounds lived like two blocks from me. So I used to go over and watch them practice all the time, doing Junior Walker and Otis Redden. And so even at that age, um, there was this sort of combination of music. Now, my parents listened to a different thing with Lou Rawls and a sort of a more mature uh, R&B sound. So I got exposed to that. Then I spent a lot of time with an aunt of mine, and she really was a jazz, I would say, an aficionado. So she really turned me on to a lot of other things, uh, Gene Ammons, Duke Ellington, Count Basie, standard things. But um, so all the time there's all of this all of this sort of intermeshing of music at the same time that there's this cultural intermeshing that's taking place. But uh, going to Newark was rough. In 1969, I went to Newark Public Schools, and they had metal detectors then. And so going from this sort of really... By comparison, a sort of rural community, even though South Bend's not rural, but a country by comparison. I mean, immediately when I got to Newark, I mean, I saw brass knuckle fights and, you know, and so that was really typical of sort of the years I spent in Newark. There was a lot of trying to avoid trouble because it was all around. 
So when we moved to Newark, um, the public schools were just not very good. And we lived in a 15-story high-rise, which was all very new. Out my window, I could see the Statue of Liberty, the World Trade Center, New York skyline. So that was pretty cool. But still, it was so different. And I'll tell you, one, when I was about in eighth grade, the NAACP had a fundraiser. And I think this was a sort of a big moment jump when my musical interest jumped. They had a fundraiser at, at Madison Square Garden. And my dad took me to see this concert. And it was very unusual because usually Madison Square Garden, they have the musician at one end of the garden. And then everybody sort of goes out from there. But this was on a moving circular stage. And Sammy Davis Jr. was the host, Stevie Wonder, B.B. King, uh, Duke Ellington Orchestra. And it was like, whoa. And, <laughs> and you know, and, and I think when you're a young kid, you might think, oh, Duke Ellington, that's what this person. But when you see these people live, you realize just how cool it is. You know, and I didn't know much about B.B. King at that time. But, you know, when you see people live, it changes things. And right. that's just how it's always been with me. When you see them live, it's like, whoa, these guys are great musicians. For those who are just tuning in, I'll remind our listeners, this is Profiles. I'm Will Murphy, and we're talking with one of our own tonight, something we don't uh, often get to do, our own brother, William Morris, who's uh, been at the station now for what? A little About over? Going on a year and a half. Yeah, a little over a year now. So uh, finding a little, a little bit about his background. I have to say, pause, and we've been talking about your interest in sports and basketball, and we're in the medium of radio. So folks might be envisioning a basketball guy, 6'2", whatever. Uh, were you a Spud Webb kind of a guy? Because you're not, you're not a well, power forward. Uh, well, what happened was, okay, so I'm about 5'9", 200 pounds. I was 5'9", 170 in seventh grade. Okay. So everybody thought I was going to be big. So I played like a big man, uh, but I had to develop guard skills later. But my real games were football, which I went to college on scholarship for, and baseball. So I was a center fielder and a wide receiver. So... Those were my real games, but I still loved basketball because we all played it all the time. Right. Now, so. you talk about, about uh, your interest in music, and your dad's job implies the kind of political things that are going on in the 60s. Certainly, I can remember, even as a 12-year-old or an 11-year-old in 1968, that's an important year. A lot of things are happening at a lot of different levels. Talk a little bit about your experience of politics and music in 1968 and those years and the degree to which you become politically aware. Well, you know, I, I don't know that in 68. I mean, I remember watching the TV. I forget exactly what I was watching, maybe the evening news or something. I don't know. I was sort of precocious in that way when the announcement came on that Dr. King had been shot. But I think maybe if I go back and I'm trying to think, where did I mix music with politics? Which, of course, they do mix, right? But I wasn't at a Gil Scott Heron level at that time or anything like that. Um, but it's impossible if you're in the 60s and tuning in a TV to escape pictures of Vietnam, of the unrest on campus, the music going on. Well, I can tell you this is very interesting because I came across this the other day. And I know this is going to sound so corny, but the place where music and politics came together for me was the Smothers Brothers. And that's where I started to, like, listen. And because the Smothers Brothers would always, you know, they were very controversial back yep. then. And there was always a steady threat that they were going to get kicked off from the show, which was very popular on Sunday nights. Right. You know, it was, it was the Smothers Brothers, then Bill Cosby, then Mission Impossible. And so, uh, I would, you know, I'd watch those shows. And Smothers Brothers were funny as the Dickens, yep. but they talked about politics and they talked about race and they talked about differences in 
and the hypocrisy of the system. And I think they did so very effectively. They pushed the envelope for a lot of people. So I remember that uh, very clearly. I remember at the time also uh, my political awareness sort of took a big jump with, um, I can't think of the two guys, John Carlos and Tommy, you know, the guys that lifted the right. the, the, the fist the at the Mexico the Olympics. In and I remember taking a big jump. I remember watching that and thinking, oh, how cool is that? And so I remember taking a big jump. Of course, James Brown was pushing the envelope. You know, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. So I think there were certain things that were starting to filter, but I didn't really. The big thing that happened to me where I took a jump was a friend of mine gave me a biography of Che Guevara, and I read that, and I was about 13 or 14. This is when I moved to Newark. And I was so impressed that Che Guevara had been trained as a medical doctor, and he decided that he was going to do something else to fight for people's rights. And at that time, also moving to Newark, I got exposed to Black Panthers because we had Black Panthers and there was an Islam, Nation of Islam um, thing very close to my house, Temple. So I got exposed to that. So I started to think, I, I can't really say when politics and it all start to mesh together. I think also when I moved to New York, I started to listen to WNEW, a rock station, and I listened to this uh, DJ named Allison the Nightbird, Allison Steele, and she would sort of have a little bit of an underground thing going. So she played a lot of, uh, you know, Volunteers of America and, and Starship and things like that that made you think. And then in my apartment building, and I don't know, I'll have to tell these guys, these guys that this interview's on because I'm back in touch with them through Facebook. But there were these two guys. They were older guys, and they were sort of like— um, I don't know. They were they were thinkers and they were sort of like uh, I would call them. I don't like to use the word hippie because it has the connotations that go all kinds of ways. But right. they were. They, they were hippies. Yeah, they had a, a red, white and blue fire, uh, telephone booth in their apartment. And they <laughs> and so so I got to know them because they loved baseball and they figured out I loved baseball. So we first start talking about baseball. But then very quickly, I went to their apartment one day and I'm just a kid, you know, maybe 13, 14 and they're in their late 20s. And they gave me a, a copy of um, Ken Kesey's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and actually told me to read it and were surprised I did. And then they went and explained it all to me. Then they gave me the electric Kool-Aid acid. I mean, they gave me a bunch of other books that were just a little bit wow. wild for me. Yeah. But around this time, the album Who's Next was coming out. And there's this picture of the Who having just taken a leak on this concrete block. And so they sat down and explained to me this this symbol, like, okay, so the question is here, the metaphor, who's going to be the next one to say we're going to stand up? And I think it's around this time that a bulb went on and people, you know, it was just became very interesting. I think when you go back to this political time, I think the one flew over the cuckoo's nest is so typical of the, of the metaphors you got to start to pick up. And I think when you're 13, 12, 13, 14, it takes a little while to start to get the imagery and figure out how people are trying to protest right. um, in an allegorical sense. Right. Makes sense. And I have to wonder, uh, with you growing up, my recollection in the 60s, and not just in the 60s, but that's the frame of reference I have, there's a real dialogue going on in the black community between, say, a faction that might be represented by Dr. King, a faction that might be represented by Malcolm X, Nation of Islam, there, there's a divergence of how we approach the problem. And your dad is working for the NAACP. What is he telling you? Well, that's a great question. My dad 
I would say, was not really the greatest fan of Dr. King's because he thought that Dr. King's got attention and sort of in a sort of a way, he wasn't jealous or anything like that, but he just felt like Dr. King, in a way, because of his skills and his beliefs and everything, sort of took attention from other battles that were being fought in the North and other places so that the, let's say, white sympathy was going toward Dr. King. When it, If you were a New Yorker and your white sympathy is going toward the South, my dad believed your white sympathy needed to go to Yonkers or Queens or <laughs> yeah. Newark. Mm-hmm. The problem was right there. We right. didn't need to go down South and send busing, though we did. He understood that. Right. But he felt like, you know. There are problems right yeah, here. Yeah, we still got problems like right here. I mean, you know that whole thing about the North and the South, that whole dichotomy that uh, a black man and a white man, they're enemies in the South, but they know it. Right. Uh, And and you go up North and they're enemies, but they don't know it. Right, right. And so I think my father sort of was tuned into that sort of thinking in a way. So what I learned about that dichotomy, I learned it really on the streets. Um, And it's not to put my dad down, but I really, he, he was very busy with his job. He was gone every weekend traveling around the country to uh, help folks uh, working for the NAACP. So my mother worked, too, so I really had to learn Newark What by did myself. your mother do? She worked at uh, Macy's in Newark. Does she have a political awareness as no, well? No, as she? no, I would say almost none. <laughs> no, she was, uh, my mother was a kind-hearted woman who loved lost animals and lost children. And so <laughs> I would say that's how, that's sort of how she expressed herself. But What I had to learn about that time, I learned from going out and people taking the time to teach me. Um, So I had friends, young friends, whose brothers were in the Nation of Islam. So they would talk to me about what Malcolm X was saying or what the Nation of Islam was saying or Louis Farrakhan. And Newark was big. Newark had a big temple. Yeah, big temple. Yeah. Yeah, so there was a lot of activism. So the thing that I think is so interesting about that time is in one year, the people who lived in front of me, the Italians and Irish, have my ear. And the other half of the time, blacks and Puerto Ricans have my ear from the other part of my life. And they're constantly going in and out, and I'm thinking about what they're trying to tell me. So there was Che Guevara, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, the Black Panthers. Smothers Brothers. Yeah, Smothers Brothers. <laughs> There's all these images and all these recollections of things. One thing that really changed my life is a friend of mine had suggested, and I got an album Uh, by Dr. King. It's an album of sermons. And I think a lot of people, and sometimes I play this on Dr. King's birthday, I'll play it with Maceo Parker in the background. There's a big difference in listening to Dr. King make a political speech and Dr. King giving a sermon. And I really believe that when you listen to Dr. King, if you have a chance listening to him give sermons, you really come to the foundation of what he thought and how he believed. Because it's very easy to say, oh, Dr. King's a great human being. He, he would say, and I do believe this, he'd say, I'm a Christian first. And whatever he found, he found in, his, in the great black theologians of the early 20th century, Howard Thurman. So there's so many others who sort of had to figure out how to define love and forgiveness as victims of racial oppression. And not only did, and so it would, on, the, on the surface, it would sound like a, uh, a victim's sort of thinking. But Dr. King, of course, we know did not did not accept that. And he turned it into a a strength that we're seeking to pursue through a divine love. And I and I, I got that that album. And I'm sure I listened to that album a thousand times. Wow. Just listen to that sermon called The Drum Major Instinct. 
and essentially saying that our instinct in life, according to some psychologists, is that we want to be first. We want to be the one who leads the parade. And Dr. King would say, it's okay if you want to lead the parade, but leave it, lead it in love, lead it in moral clarity, lead it in compassion. And that's the way. So I, that message picked up. I, I, I got that very early on. I was probably 13. So then having discussion with my friends who were from the Nation of Islam, well, they had a position, too, and their position was well-grounded, too. Yep. So you can imagine we had some great some conversations, conversations at a very yeah. early age. And that also, I think, is, is, a, yeah. uh, is a phenomenon of the 60s, that you had very volatile discussions among friends on different sides of the, of the country's debate. William, let's pause it there. Uh, and remind folks that we're uh, we're listening to profiles today. William Morris, uh, this jockey attorney. There are so many different ways we could describe this gentleman. And we're very glad glad to have him in the studios and talk to him for an hour about his uh, past and his contributions. I'm Will Murphy. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Will Murphy. And our guest this evening is our very own William Morris, Brother William, to his listeners here on WFIU. He has a show every Friday afternoon called The Soul Kitchen. And uh, today, taking some time to get to know sort of the story behind how he got to Bloomington and and where he's at right now. So last time, uh, right before the break, we were uh, talking about the music and the political environment of the 1960s that you and I both grew up in. Uh, and during the break, we're talking about uh, your experience in high school and how you really get into music in a serious way. Talk about that a little bit. Well, I went to a Catholic high school. I ended up going to a Catholic high school that was sort of an athletic juggernaut. And I got sort of scouted somehow, and I ended up going to this Catholic high school. I got a scholarship to go play ball. But the high school, uh, so that sort of really turned my mind in a way, too, because music was such a... You know, we had to have religion class every year. But in religion class, we'd listen to music. You know, we'd listen to the things that we'd listen to Bob Dylan. Um, we'd listen to uh, the songs that the Temptations were trying to do back then, you know, Psychedelic Shack and Cloud Nine and all of these things. And there were other people who were trying to say things. Marvin Gaye's What's Going On is coming out at this time. Actually, it already been out, which, you know, is one of the great all-time albums for social commentary. And of course, at that time, we're listening to Bob Dylan, Maggie's Farm and and all these things. Um, Times they are changing. And, and, you know, it's all becoming part of the dialogue. We had a teacher there. His name was John Pinella. Mr. Pinella liked to help us understand poetry by listening to lyrics. So we got to learn. And I'll never forget, of course, I learned alliteration by listening to Lacey, Lilting Lady, Losing Love, Lamenting, Sweet Judy, Blue Eyes. And... um, (laughs) The circle game and, you know, talking about life goes around in the circle. It goes round and round Judy Collins. And um, so we just, you know, music was all around and music was such an important part. And I know you'll agree of how we took in messages. Right. Um, There may be John Stewart today. So comedy is a way. But back then, music was the way you integrated these things and tried to learn stuff. And and people were trying to say things. Um, Although I think folks would say today. Politics comes through music, too. Oh, yeah, and they probably would. I just, maybe I've stopped listening. I don't <laughs> listen as much as I used to then. But it was tied into high school. And um, one thing at our high school, we had, uh, like I guess so many other high schools, we had this battle of the bands and once or twice a year. And we had some great bands come in. And there was, I used to go, and I used to just sit up front and just watch them. 
And they were so good. Um, one band was a, like a Jethro Tull takeoff, doing Ian Anderson with the flute and everything. <laughs> and one band had a, it was called Ice Station. And there was a guy that was named Steve Becker. He was a great rock drummer. And I think people that know drummers in rock, Steve wasn't up there, up there with like uh, Ginger Baker or anything. But people that would know, because Steve became the drummer for Southside Johnny and Asbury Dukes. But he was the nicest guy. And I used to just love, started watching. So I used to just start going around and watching Ice Station. Then I don't know, maybe sometime around 1972, I started going to concerts in New York. And uh, there was a there's a place called the Woman Ice Skating Rink at the southern end of Central Park. And every summer they would have these Schaefer Beer would sponsor these music festivals. And for two or three dollars, you could see the very best people. They would play for like two hours, maybe from six to eight. So you could get home on time. And so we used to just go over there all the time. The first one I saw was the Chambers Brothers. Dave Mason, King Crimson, Richie Fure, Chris Hillman. I mean, I can just go on and on. Just uh, saw Harry Chapin on my 18th birthday and wow. just fell in love because I had never, didn't really know Harry Chapin that well. And when you saw him live, just listening to him sing these songs and tell these stories with cellos cello, in the back yeah. and all this. Orchestration, It yeah. was just so fantastic. It was, it was, it was uh, magical. And I just got so many memories. And then going to the garden to see the Who sneaking backstage to meet David Bowie and Rod Stewart. Um, just <laughs> all of these things that were going on. And the last thing that sort of figured into this is, of course, Newark is a chocolate city, right? It's a predominantly black city. And they had a great radio station there. They have a great jazz station there now, you know. And right. Our colleague David Brent Johnson has a show on there. Yep. Um, but back then, and they may have had the jazz station there, but I don't think so. They had um, another station called WNJR. It was an African-American station that had African-American news and music. And so I used to listen to that one a lot, too. So, you know, at that time, talking about social stuff, uh, Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes, I can remember that. Wake up, everybody, no more sleeping, you know. And so all of these things. But but that was a part of my dialogue, too, was the music that I got from there, the live shows, people talking about music. And so all of that came together. And it was it was really I mean, I, even back then, I, I had become acquisitive when it came to albums. I had a big album collection. And all of us remember yourself, I'm sure, how cumbersome it was to move albums. Oh, yeah. 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 So far, the story of William Morris uh, is about popular culture and music introducing you to politics. Um, and you're mostly interested in sports and popular culture starting out. Is there a point at which that ratio changes? Or at what point is there a real sort of um, activation of your social conscience? Because you later on you get into a lot of social justice work. Yes. Well, you know, it was really, in a sense, always there because my dad was such a big influence on my life. And he was always, you know, I can, I can hear him to this day saying, if you don't use your talents to help people's lives, then they're just wasted. So that was always in the back of my mind and Dr. King's sermon. So there are so many times there in Newark where people were fighting. Um, there was a lot of violence and a lot of, a lot of bad behavior. And I, you know, it sounds, I pat myself on the back, but I remember being the peacemaker lots of times. So it may not have sort of been like, okay, we're going to go out and start marching or anything, but there was a... There are a, a lot of different ways you can oh, go yeah, in that environment, right. and a lot of folks go the wrong way, and it yes. ends badly for them. How come you don't? Well, the last conversation I had with my dad in 1999, 
out of the blue, he said, Billy, because he called me Billy. He said, Billy, I'm so glad you got out of Newark alive. And he caught me by surprise. I said, what? <laughs> but, yeah, he was right because I was left to my own devices. And, and you know, and I'm not going to lie, I got into some trouble. Nothing that ever got written on paper. <laughs> but I was in bad places at bad times when there was shooting and knives and, you know, I mean, police fights and gang fights and lots of bad places at and bad times. I don't know exactly, but... Somebody was looking out for Somebody you. was looking over my shoulder. That's right. And then I went off to college. And I can remember I went to Lehigh University in Pennsylvania. Why there? Um, I got a scholarship. I'd gotten several scholarships, and that was the place closest to home, and I think that's what we all wanted. I could have gone to University of New Hampshire, Bucknell, Lehigh, Penn, but Lehigh we ended up being the one. And what's the scholarship? Was it a, it was a, a football um, academic scholarship. It was, athlete. Okay. It was both. So yeah, so I ended up going there. I didn't. I didn't, definitely didn't become more politically active. You didn't. Well, I, I was vice president of our Black Student Union, and in that way, there was always a dialogue going on. But at that time, I what I did, I think the most politically active thing that I really remember, and it's not even politically active because I don't necessarily think of myself as politically active. I think of myself as someone who tries to help the poor and people that don't have a lot. And in college, I started doing big brother work at a state hospital working with kids who were orphans. And that was the big step that happened in, in college. That was really the big thing. Um, my professor, when he wrote my recommendation letter for um, law school, said, William majored in extracurricular activities. <laughs> so <laughs> take that where you want. But but I was involved in a lot of things and did a lot of stuff. But I, I have to admit, Will, I didn't know what I was doing. I really didn't. I just was, hey, hey Bill, you want to come do this? Yeah, okay, come on, let's do it. Always interested in, in just about everything yeah. and liking other people, finding out what they're interested in. Yes, and couldn't say no. <laughs> and couldn't say no. And then the sports things are always there, so that takes time too. But. And I was going to say, uh, sports folks on any campus are likely to draw their fair share of attention. Well, I was a gym rat, and still to some to some extent, I, I love going to the gym and I love being in gyms, but but back then I was at the gym every day, so whatever I did extra, you know, it was, you know, I didn't realize there was only 24 hours in a day at that time, <laughs> so it took me a while. And a after college, I moved to Washington, D.C., and took a job with... Um, with an aerospace company as a corporation writer. Now, that was really not me. I did it because it was sort of arranged with my dad and family and stuff. But I learned a lot. I saw a lot. But I wasn't really active in, in things. I think what happened in Washington is I started to get active in church. And sort of church is where I start to find my social voice. Before we go there, I just want to yeah. mop up some points. Yeah. What's your degree in coming out of college? Um, journalism. And what was the motivation there? When I went to college, I, I can remember it like today. We're sitting there with the advisor, and uh, the advisor says, well, what do you want to major in? What do you want to do? And I want to be the mayor of Newark. But I was so embarrassed to say that, I didn't, I didn't say anything. And the guy says, well, what does he do well, Mr. Morse? And my father says, he writes well, and I do. And so he said, well, why don't you try journalism? <laughs> and I did. I became an editor on the paper and everything. And it was it was pretty cool. I won awards and stuff. But that wasn't my thing. It's okay. nice to be able to write. And it's nice to appreciate good journalism, as you know. But that wasn't my thing. It wasn't your thing. So what, uh, what prompts you to then pursue a law degree? 
I was getting a master's degree at Howard University. It may have been at Howard that something turned on because I ended up going to Howard to get a master's degree in communication. And when I was there, I met uh, Thurgood Marshall. I met Ali. I met Oscar Brown Jr. I met Ossie Davis. Um, you know, you just meet these right. people and and you're in this African-American situation where everybody, you know, it's just it's just all together different. Lehigh, there was like 2% black. Then you go to Howard University and it's like, whoa. And I mean, I made some great friends there, you know, that just uh, people that were on the Pulitzer Prize board and just fantastic people that had done so many things. People that had tried to seek social justice in Vietnam, of course, and I start to meet and I'm I made a presentation at a class one time. Yeah, you know, for my master's degree. And afterward, the professor said, that was a good presentation. You should be a lawyer. And when she said that, it you know, like, well, I said, yes, I should. So I went home and told my dad. And was your dad a lawyer? No, but okay. he was like a lawyer yeah. because he had to deal with a lot of HUD regulations. Cases, yeah. uh-huh. mm-hmm. So he was pleased. And so I went off to North Carolina. Now, let's just trace this again for folks who are joining yeah. us late. You start off in Terre Haute, you yeah. go to South Bend, mm-hmm. then it's Newark mm-hmm. with trips to New York. Pennsylvania, 2% African-American mm-hmm. to Howard. Mm-hmm. Now we're in the Carolinas. Yeah, now I'm You're going, going through to... a lot of bio zones here. Oh, brother, you ain't kidding. And I, I don't know, except when I have conversations like this, which aren't very often, that I can appreciate all that's going on. Because I'm looking. You know, I'm really looking. I'm not just going from one place to another for a vacation. Or so. I'm looking, but I'm not finding, and I don't know exactly... Sometimes you don't know what you're looking for. You know, you just you just and then a, you find it a restlessness. Yep. So I ended up going to Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and first I lived in Oxford, North Carolina, for a year because I found a place. I had a friend there, and um, I wanted to get residency. A friend of mine who had gone to Duke said, "Okay, come on down here. Apply to three law schools. One you it's hard to get into. One you got a good chance to get into, and one you know you'll get into." So I applied <laughs> to Duke, UNC, and North Carolina Central. And I got into all of them, actually. Excellent. Yeah. But Carolina was $800 a year at that time if you were a resident. So I couldn't pass that up. Yep. So I ended up going to Carolina. And at Carolina is where these things start start to make some sense. I don't mean to put words in your mouth or make inferences that aren't justified. But I would think after being in New York and then being at Howard that the political climate in the Carolinas is going to be weird for you. Well, it was, but the thing is, is that I think the 80s was still a time when there's still things that are going on in communities that are just legal. I mean, like school desegregation, and which is the first issue that I got involved in. So those sort of issues were still alive and active. School desegregation, redlining, red zoning, and there was just a lot that all of a sudden, I guess it just sort of, it sort of just became clearer to me. When I went to law school, my first internship, I went to work for legal services in Mississippi. And there I did a lot of research on school desegregation, and I start to see it. And it's very hard to explain this, but it's not like I'm apolitical this whole time. I've got stuff going on in my head, but I don't have hooks to hang it on yet or ways to express it or people to work through it with. And at this so, point, you're in your mid-20s? I'm in my late 20s. Late 20s. Yeah, 28. So anyway, I ended up in Mississippi for a summer, and it was fantastic. And I met some some super lawyers, and I came back inspired. But, you know, Will, it's hard to tell my story. It's like, it's like trying to understand a story about a Dr. King or another 
socially active pastor without understanding their relationship to the church. That's just so key. And that's foundational and, for you. And, and this is foundational for me. And, and when does that happen? It happens when I go to Mississippi. When I go to Mississippi, there's a church that's there, and that church is talking social activism through a church community. And that is when, like, another light goes on. And I said, okay, this is it. It's not just church to go and start learning about things, but it's applying it. It's applying it and making it work in a way that's sort of consistent with that sermon that I've told you about, Dr. King's sermon. Well, I'm kind of surprised it, it's it's waiting till now to happen because I think of Dr. King's letter from Birmingham jail when he says, oh, yeah. you know, it's not just in the church. It's you got to take it outside. Mm-hmm. Um, but for you, it, it, it comes rather late. Yeah, but it comes. So I, I can't, can't speak to the time of it, but it comes. And it comes very clearly. If I start to demarcate that time in my life, then people start to come who adhere to that to that thinking. So I go back to Chapel Hill. I go back to my second year of law school. I find a church there, and I get involved in church. And church helps me to ground myself in terms of my convictions and how I'm going to try to live my life. Before that, was faith any part of your life, or were you going to church with your folks? Well, no, my folks didn't go to church. Okay. Um, but it was— um, Isn't that surprising in the African-American community in the 1950s and 60s? Well, I'm not quite sure. My dad was a Unitarian. Okay. So he believed that he didn't want to be anywhere Sunday that was segregated. And that's probably still true today. He'd be a Unitarian today, probably. <laughs> but, uh, but he took me to the Unitarian church as a young boy— that was the first time I met white people, <laughs> I would say. It was a great experience. I mean, you know, it was very different than going to African-American church where I went every week for years wow. as a Sunday school, every week for years. And then, you know, and everything was sort of stern and strict, but still good. But, you know, because I'm with all my friends. Right. But, so, uh, But in Mississippi, but anyway, it hits the Yeah, hits yeah, the something clicks. There's a good set of friends. There's people I meet. There's young, it just, it, I just process it, and I say, okay. This is what I'm looking for. This is the kind of lawyer I want to be. I told my dad about it. He sent me this book. I was just thinking about this the other day. He sent me this book about this pastor in San Francisco, a black pastor, who starts this social outreach through the ministry sort of church. And I know my dad was saying, okay, here's a model. Here's a model. I wish I could find that book again but because that, that then becomes what I want to do. I want to be a lawyer and a minister. That was my my objective with the and they meet in social justice. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Because I was never going to do anything but social justice. I was never going to do anything than um, try to step into my dad's footsteps. That That's the only thing I ever wanted to do gotcha. was try to figure that out. I don't know. I guess I could say you could say, well, why did you how did it happen so late? I think there's people who never happens at all. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. I just sort of say, well. You know, in the Jesus ministry, he gets three years. So I, you know, Bob Marley sort of said something like that. Well, just give me six years to do good uh-huh. and I'll give it my best. Yeah. So I've always sort of felt that way. So you go to, to law school and you're, you've got the internship in, in in Mississippi. Yeah. Find the church, go back and complete your law degree. Yes. And I did internships every year with, in, with legal services because that's where I you know. Like, so the second year after law school, I went and worked with North Carolina legal services. So I was starting to do more housing and unemployment law. And I'm starting to get a very, very deeper sense personally because I'm involved in it with the barriers that people are facing in jobs, in housing, criminal records, all of these. I mean, I'm really starting to, it's starting to crystallize. And you've talked about 
getting involved with helping kids with the Big Brother mm-hmm. uh, endeavor. Um, are there extracurricular activities that you're doing that sort of uh, outside of law school that you're and outside of uh, your practice? Well, let me get to that. After okay. I passed the bar exam in North Carolina, I had this idea I wanted to drive across country. And I just had this little Toyota and I was going to drive across country and then come back and get, get back to work. But I ended up going to New York City and uh, I said, OK, I'll stay in New York for a month. You know, I'm just want to just like sort of have some fun for a little while. So I go to a temp agency, and they place me with Planned Parenthood of America. And so I go to work at Planned Parenthood of America as a secretary because I could type very fast. And very soon they sort of, I don't know, quote, unquote, discovered me. So they put me in charge of this thing called teen education advocacy. I was the national acting director. So I start going around the country to talk about teen programs in Planned Parenthood. Not teen programs to take like birth control, but teen programs to work with single mothers and single fathers and young kids who are having babies and how to not. And, you know, and it was fascinating. It was fascinating. And I think if sometimes people who call themselves um, pro-life, if they could see that work that Planned Parenthood does to go out and work with education to help young boys who have kids become better fathers, it just, you know, you see another side of them that right. is way off the map a little bit. Right. So I did that work for a year in New York City. Then after a year, some friends said, man, why don't you come down to North Carolina? We got something starting down here. And that's about what happened. I went down to Chapel Hill and there was a lawyer there named Al McShirley who was starting to raise some hell. A white guy who was who had grown up in Arlington, Virginia, next door to um, Warren Beatty. So uh, but he was a, he's a heck of a lawyer. And um very, very instrumental in starting Moral Mondays. Very good friends with Reverend Barber. So for the next 12 years... Let's back up and explain oh, yeah, to folks who wouldn't know, what's Moral Mondays? Moral Mondays is a movement that was started by the NAACP out of North Carolina that is called a movement of fusion politics. So as Reverend William Barber, the president of North Carolina NAACP, would say, we have a tent of communities. And the two poles that hold up that tent are racism and poverty. And if you're prepared to fight against racism and poverty, then you're welcome in the tent. So the whole idea of fusion politics, or part of the idea, is to get people who are for gay rights to understand people who are working for labor rights, to get people more integrated in their understanding of the different missions and goals and objectives of other parties so we can all work together a little bit more uniformly. Okay. And so this is sort of... It really took off in North Carolina and, you know, voting rights, other rights and lots, lots of different things. And it, it took off in a way here in Indiana and some other states. And it's we're still working on getting it up on its feet. But Al, this lawyer that I worked with, um, was very instrumental in um, a lot of cases that we started to work with. So I worked with Al for about 10 years. Now, we're, we're about to reach what I think is a pretty important crucible uh, in your life. And we've reached a point that's always fascinating to me in your life, this point where, and I think in my imagination, I may have created a moment that doesn't exist, but there's a moment where you kind of walk out of the courtroom, you've been practicing law, and you rip up your law license and you go to Mexico. How accurate is that recollection on my part? Well, that's that's very accurate in the fact that it happened. <laughs> um, but what happened, okay. there was some circumstances leading up to it in that In my time in the church, for three or four summers, I went on these overseas mission trips. I went to Bolivia. I went to uh, uh, Mexico. I went to Trinidad. 
and I enjoyed the time that I that I went. I mean, I thoroughly enjoyed this, um, and I was sort of growing in my sense of spirituality, and I enjoyed the relationships and working with kids. And I've always enjoyed that, and that's a part we can't get into now. But I've always was coaching or doing something with kids. Always, um, I think part of that early history gave me what I call the orphan heart. So I I just really have a great feeling for kids. Right, and so. About 1998, I uh, had a big case, made a little bit of money, and I just said to myself, I'm going to go overseas and spend some time doing mission work. So I didn't necessarily rip anything up, but I paid off my bills, so I ripped those up, (laughs) and then I headed to Guatemala. So I went to Guatemala, took some intensive Spanish classes for about six weeks. Then I went to go work in a school for really, really impoverished children and stayed there for almost a year. So that's how I ended up there, and and I had a great time. I had a great time. I was a smoker before that, so I stopped smoking. I just, like, all of a sudden, my life just really changed. I just became healthier. I became, I don't know, it just became really more who you see today. But you go you go to Guatemala, yeah. you're working with, the, with, these, with these kids. Right. I'm still trying to get my head around why this in particular appeals to you. And- the thing was is that I, I really had this very strong feeling inside of me that I wanted to just now go be a missionary. Mm-hmm. So that was the whole thing. And I had understood from the missionary trips I had before that I liked working with children. I had no doubt about that. And I thought I had an ability to work with children. And anybody who goes out and sort of puts themselves in situations where you work with poor children, you realize there are never too many volunteers. There's never too many people that can be involved in that forum because there's so many kids that need help. Wonderful, wonderful children who, um, there's never too many, you know, surrogate parents. Is there a reason that you go outside the country instead? I mean, it could be the argument you could go to Harlem, you could go to backwoods of Kentucky. Why? That's what my dad asked me. Mm-hmm. He said, well, why do you need to go here? Why can't you go back to Newark or do something like that? I, I, I can't really answer that question. I, I can go back to a moment when we first moved to Newark, New Jersey. One of the first nights my dad let me go out in Newark on my own. I find myself at a small park called Lincoln Park. And I get to Lincoln Park about 7 o'clock on a Saturday night. And all of a sudden people are bringing out congas, marimbas, and they're starting to play like salsa. And right. I was like... Okay, I like this Latin culture, <laughs> and I always have, and it's still a part of me. I still like Latino culture, so it was it was fine. And then those um, overseas mission trips I had, I just thought there's something about being out of your comfort zone that brings out the best in who you are, and 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 it did. Did you uh, uh, have any problems as an American in Central America in the 90s? Well, you can look at me and you can see that, you know, when I'm somewhere, most places, people don't know I'm an American until I start talking. (laughs) And so they'll think, you know, when I'm in Latin America, people look at me, they think, oh, he's Cuban. Oh, he's Puerto Rican. He's somewhere, you know, something like that. But they won't think I'm American until I start talking. And then after a while, of course, I learned Spanish pretty well. And my accent is actually very good. So they didn't even know it then. (laughs) <laughs> okay, so you're there for a year. Then I had to come back to the United States because my father had a stroke. But before he had a stroke, I came back to visit him because I needed to check in. I knocked on his door and he answered the door and he saw how I had completely changed. And he said, son, whatever you're doing, keep doing it. You just look great. You look happy. You look content. So I had his blessing to go back and teach and I did. But I had to go back because he'd gotten very sick. 
So when my father passed away, then I went back. But this time I went to Chiapas, Mexico, down where the Zapatistas were. And I sort of had a feeling I wanted to go there. And I got involved a little bit with the Zapatista community. I didn't meet Subcomandante Marcos, but I got very <laughs> close to him very many uh-huh. times. And I had a great time there amongst the ruins of uh, Palenque and not the other places. Not nervous at all again? Hmm? I, I, I mean, I know you've made the case that you blend in well, but still, not. that's a nervous—I would be nervous in that group. Well, I can't tell you what it is, Will. I mean, you've had a chance to get to know me, but new groups of people— are like magnets to me. You know, I don't I don't even I don't get the least bit nervous. I'm sort of like I want to meet you. But these are new people with guns sometimes. Well, no, they didn't have guns. And when you get back in there, it's sort of like, you know, my uh, fiance Sarah and I went to Israel last year and when mm-hmm. we were there people were like thinking it's going to, you know, but you know, it's it's not as bad as it sounds. Um when you get back there there's just a bunch of in Chiapas in the jungle there's just a lot of people who are very 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 poor trying to figure out how to improve their conditions. So all of these things are sort of tying into this old thing of my Che Guevara mentality. And I'm like, okay, I sort of see what Che saw when he took that trip to South America, not thinking he was going to become, you know, Che Guevara, but just taking a trip to go around and he sees all this poverty. And when you go into Latin American poverty, it is, you know, it's it's stark. Um, there is poverty like that in the United States, but we I don't think many of us see it. But right. there it's it's a lot. It's everywhere. Yeah, it's, and it's everywhere. It's a, it's a lot more prevalent. Now, we're almost mm-hmm. through this hour, mm-hmm. incredible as that sounds. So I want to find out what it is that brings you from Chiapas to Bloomington and the life you've built here over the past few years. Okay, so in 1997 or so, my father... Mr. Morris said, son, I think you ought to go find your birth parents. And I said, oh, and he said, yeah, I knew I was adopted, but it wasn't an issue. But he said, yeah, you know, there's so much you can find out about your health nowadays and you need to know. So he gave me the information. And um, so I found my birth mother and she lived here in Bloomington. So she and I became we became pretty close. We became good friends. She was in failing health at that time. And once again, the first time I meet her at Indianapolis Airport, that's a very sort of... I was going to say, it's got to be very emotional. Oh, yeah, yeah. Very, very, very emotional. Because her circumstances of having me were so harsh because she had fallen in love with a black man. that After she had me in that terrible situation, she never had any more kids, never dated again or anything. So it was like finding something that she thought she had lost, but also bringing back the pain that was associated with all that. So we became very close. So in 2005, after I'd been in Mexico for some years, I realized, whoa, I can't leave her. She's going to die and she's going to be by herself because just the circumstances of her life, she'd found herself alone. So I called up the place I was working in Mexico. I said, I'm going to stay for a semester. And they were, the Mexicans are very pro-family. I mean, they really, and one thing about Mexicans, at least the culture as I saw it, was that if there's a car and everybody can't go, nobody goes. Right? I mean, it's just really so pro-family. Right? It's pro, right. you know, everybody goes or nobody goes. And so anyway, so they were very receptive. You stay there, that's fine. But after one semester, my mother's health didn't get better, so I stayed another. So after one year and seeing my foster family again and meeting other blood relatives, Indiana felt like the right place. So you take all of this big story we just told, all these places I've been, when I came back to the land of my birth, I felt like 
this is where I'm supposed to be. And I felt that in such a deep way that I just knew it was absolutely 100% true. Now, are there prettier places? Yes. Are there better friends in other places? Yeah, in many ways. Better music? Absolutely. <laughs> More integration of races? Absolutely. But this is where I'm from. And I don't, you know, I say I'm going to Muncie. I don't have to explain where Muncie is or right. South Bend or Terre Haute or Bowling Green or any of that. You know, it's just I'm from here. So it just it just made sense. And so immediately I didn't know what I was going to do. I ended up teaching English as a second language at the university for a while. And then I got it back in my spirit. Go back to the law. And so I went back to law and now I work with legal services. Doing what you were doing back in the Carolinas? Well, not really, because in the Carolinas, I was in private practice. Okay. So here, I'm, you know, when you work with uh, legal services or public defender or something, there's uh, parameters about what you can do. So I do housing, mostly housing, but I do housing and employment. What I really do in a broader sense is I try to help people remove barriers to employment, to housing, to anything that they need to make their life of a better quality. So again, but it does sort of bring together, as you say, the... The legal education you got in the Carolinas with the grounding in Mississippi, mm-hmm. legal services, mm-hmm. you got that first introduction. Mm-hmm. So you f- see this is the place you're going to be for the duration? Or is it that's yeah, something I, you don't say if you're William Moore? You no, know, because now, in addition to all that, I have a fiancé, you know, who means a lot to me. Where I won't go where she won't go. And uh, I have a church, and I won't go where it won't go. And, um, you know, just just other things that are developing in my life. And you have a radio and I, show. And I got a radio show, and it's not going to let me be broadcasting <laughs> from Mississippi or Mexico. So there's all of these things here that create roots for me, roots that mean a lot. And I think when you deal with people who have orphanage, orphan, have orphan background, you're all, I mean, I don't know, I can't speak for all of us, but I think there's this thing about finding your roots. And then when you find them, you know it. And you just say, okay, thank God. And, and try I'm to, here. Yeah, I'm here. I'm home. Yeah, that's right. I'm home. <laughs> Brother William, it's always good to have a conversation with you. It's always time well spent. I'll remind our uh, listeners that we've been talking with uh, William Morris, Brother William of uh, the Soul Kitchen, heard here on WFIU on a Friday afternoon. I've re- I'm really grateful for the opportunity to find answers to these questions I've had ever since I met you back in 2000. Yes, yes, yes. Well, we've had a good friendship during that Absolutely. time. Thank you. William, thank you very much. Mm-hmm. For all of us at WFIU, I'm Will Murphy. Thanks for listening. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. Josh Brewer is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles.